Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Birdcast. I'm John Deere. And I'm Howard Ingham. John and I have done podcasts together before, but this time we're trying to make something happen that's got a consistent theme and direction. And John and I decided it was time for a podcast series about Quatermass, because there is always time for a podcast series about Quatermass. And so Birdcast was born, the official podcast of the British Experimental Rocket Group. Well, that and also that Hammer have a new Quatermass film coming out. Anyway, over the course of the series, we'll be looking at every manifestation of Quatermass on TV, in film and on radio, and from time to time explore some related media with a selection of guests. In our first episode, we're delighted to have actor, comedian and writer Toby Haydoke, who's currently working on a two-volume book on Quatermass, and we'll talk about that, the origins of Quatermass, and the first episode, Contact, has been established. We'll cover the rest of the Quatermass experiment in the next episode of Birdcast. Unfortunately, Howard couldn't join me for this one as he was uh, gallivanting around the US being nominated for writing awards. So before I chat to Toby, I'm sure our listeners would love to hear what the writer of We Don't Go Back thinks about a story originally called Bring Something Back. That was clever, wasn't it? That was very clever indeed, John. Well done. Well, it's a peculiar, haunted experience watching something like this. In watching it, I find myself aware that I'm watching a fragment, a reflection of the artifact that was in fact broadcast. To see it in its original form, you actually had to be there, sitting in front of your TV at nine o'clock on the 18th of July, 1953, watching it live, broadcast live like theatre. But what we're seeing is the result of someone pointing a film camera at a TV screen. In a sense, it's not even a recording of the programme we're watching. It's a recording of the experience of watching the programme. And to know that it's largely lost to memory, that the chances of ever seeing the rest of it are, barring a miracle, about zero, means we have to rely on living memory. And now, with it being 66 years ago this month, that living memory is itself fading. My late father, who loved Quatermass, once told me that his favourite show of the 1970s was Doomwatch. And he recounted to me in detail his favourite episode, which is the one where Toby Wren cuts the wrong wire and dies in an explosion. It's one of my clearest memories of him, weirdly. It's a connection we shared, that love of TV. And, of course, that episode is also lost to us. And all I have is a second-hand memory of it, a version that is not exactly a shooting script and a fragment of it that survives in the recap in the following episode. And the Quatermass experiment, going back to that, is lost to us all the more because everyone or nearly everyone involved in making it is gone. We're watching a faded copy of the work of the dead. We're watching, in a very strong sense, a ghost of television. It's even more haunting because of how good it is. You kind of think that a genre drama from the 1950s is going to be hokey or silly and maybe even a little bit empty. But no, there's a poetry to Nigel Neal's writing in the way that he nails down even minor characters and adds colour with just a few lines. And he portrays excitement, anxiety and dread with this fabulous economy. If Nigel Neal's work haunts us, it haunts us most of all because he was a master. Right. 
first episode, we're beyond delighted to be joined by actor, writer, comedian, and self-confessed anorak for hire, Toby Hader. Toby, welcome. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming. It's a tremendous pleasure. You're known for people, probably, in Quatermass. You've worked on Quatermass and the Pit Blu-ray. Yeah. That's recently come out. But I also understand you have a Quatermass book. Is that correct? That, that is correct. I mean, it's sort of been correct for about the past 25 years. I met, I spoke to somebody yesterday with whom I was at university, and he said, what are you up to at the moment? I said, you won't believe it. I'm actually doing that Quatermath book I was doing when I was at university. Oh, wow. Well. And I actually, I used a lot of the material then for a dissertation. I did a dissertation on Quatermath, but what I'd done is I started in 1989 writing to various actors and production people from Quatermass, all of whom are now dead, and accumulated lots of letters and stuff from Jack Kine and Bernard Wilkie and Clifford Hatz, the designer of Quatermass and the Pits, that were you know materials from them as well. But nobody seemed to want to do a book at that time. And also, I was a teenager and probably didn't know how to present myself properly. The feedback tended to be, there's not a market for this sort of thing. Uh, and I don't know what sort of book it would have been at that time either, because I had these interviews that were all very useful, but I didn't have any paperwork or anything like that. You know, I remember I was sort of writing things like like character breakdowns for Dr. Leo Pugh, the sort of padding you'd have in a Doctor Who book at that time. <laughs> None of that stuff is there in this. If you want to write a character biography of Dr. Leo Pugh, you can, but it's not going to be in my book. And, and Milk Publishing very kindly offered to publish it many years ago and equally kindly decided not to give me a deadline because they thought that would be too <laughs> cruel. Are they regretting that? They are, I think. Well, Matt's, Matt's very patient and very nice. But And real life got in the way for various reasons. But uh, in the past couple of years, I've really knuckled down. I've also uncovered a load of really interesting stuff. So the fact that I've taken this long means I have actually had time to find some stuff that is new knowledge. So it's not just collation, which I'm quite pleased about because the collating of BBC written archive stuff is a bit boring and anyone can do that. And what it means is that I'm doing it so nobody else has to, which is, isn't the most satisfying of things. So that is there, you could do it. And Andrew Pixley has already done it, but in much shorter form for the booklet for the DVD release. So I've really been knuckling down to it. I broke off writing it in a pret a just now to come and do this. I was rifling through the taxi receipts from the filming of Quatermass and the Pit, and I know which actor had to leave filming at six o'clock to get a taxi to the Aldwych Theatre on the 26th of November. Uh, and you don't. So when the book comes out, that's the sort of golden nugget you will be sifting. Well, I know I will have sifted on your behalf. I'm wondering uh, will this date the podcast when the book actually, actually, actually <laughs> yeah. comes out, when this podcast comes out. Um, so what sort of format is the book? Is it an in-depth look per production? Yes, and I think now, because I look bits I've been enjoying most are writing about the television series of the 350s BBC TV series. I've written a good 100,000 words on each one, and I want to do 1984. i do a chapter on The Creature, which will be tiny because there's very little information. That's the production that got made into what was I Yes, that's right. Yeah, the totally missing. No production file. No. No photographs. Arthur, oh my um, and, and a chapter on Neil and a chapter on Rudolf Cartier and things like that. So I think what's going to happen is we're going to do two volumes and it's going to be the 50s serials and various related things, the sort of Neil Cartier years, if you like, and then Hammer and Beyond. So the films, the Euston John Mills thing, the remake of the Quatermass experiment and all sorts of other things from the stage production to the books. Although I might do the books in the first volume because the first books came out in the 50s and I have the chapter title Quatermass in the print, which I'm very happy about. Um, so there's a bit of juggling, and I'll be led by Matt on exactly what he wants, but there's certainly enough in the first book to look in real detail at particularly the three Neil Cartier serials. When did you first become aware of Quatermass? Were you introduced to it by the gateway drug that is Doctor Who, or was it, was it something you were aware of? 
27. Well, I'm, I think my family were a sort of go, and it's weird because I'm the youngest of four. My, my brothers were into Doctor Who to the extent that they were like any sort of teenagers who had the odd target book. They knew enough. They knew the history of Doctor Who. That I think maybe we're a family that are sort of interested in stuff and, and so would know perhaps a little bit more than your average passerby. So we had Doctor Who books. We also had a book called The A to Z of Monsters, which I still have, which was a sort of hardback again. One of those books that would be redundant today because it was just like Frankenstein monster. Frank, you know, and it was just, but it had lots of pictures from the Universal horror movies and Phantom of the Opera from the silent film, all quite scary looking stuff. And they had Daleks in there and Cybermen and Ice Warriors, I think were the only three Doctor Who things. But they also had Quatermass. It said, you know, Quatermass is not the name of the monster. It's a man who encountered monsters and it had a full page of the Martians in situ in the TV bit. And so Quatermass was always talked of in rather hallowed terms in my house. Yeah, Doctor Who's the one that we all watch and we all like, but Quatermass came before. Uh, so I knew it had been films and TV and it was, as I say, it was sort of talked of rather loftily. And then I was given BBC edited 1986 video and of Pitt. And I remember my mum walking into the room and I was watching this black and white thing. I'm being slightly disappointed that there weren't more Doctor Who actors in it. I was like, what happened between 1958 and 1960 that all of these actors, because actually hardly any of the actors from Quatermass and the Pit are in Doctor Who, if you take them on average. Mm. Um, and I quite like spotting Doctor Who actors and things. So I was... My mum walked in and one of the actors who had been in Doctor Who, Richard Shaw, uh, who plays Slatten, hits the deck. And my mum goes, oh, I remember this. This is where the gravel starts to move. And I thought, yeah, she talked about Doom Watch or something like that. Just, yeah, there's no way that she... And lo and behold, the gravel started to move. And I thought, if my mum, who doesn't give a fig about science fiction, who actually thinks I watch too much television or this sort of thing, 30 years later goes, my God, I remember this and this is what happened. And she's right. This must be something rather special. And I remember being impressed by, you know, how clever the script is and just how big... Because I think my Doctor Who watching had been always thwarted expectations. I've read the Target book of Revenge of the Cybermen. I watch it on video and I go, my imagination has conjured a better production than this. So a lot of Doctor Who on first viewing was a bit of a disappointment. But Quatermass was, I was impressed by it first out. I knew it had been spoken of in hallowed terms and I expected to have to make some concessions because it was a slightly higher budget than Doctor Who. production very strong. And Pitt in particular is an extraordinary thing. And actually the editing of that video helps as well. It, it just tightens it up and loses some slightly clunkier moments and it, it tightens up the storytelling. But they, do, they do a better job of the editing than Brad and Morbius. Yes, indeed, yes. Although I do think that three hours, even though they stick an intermission in the middle, it's, I don't think I watched it all in one go. And I watched that video over and over and over again. But there was a point, probably in the late 80s, where I could have quoted you the whole thing. Do you think there was um, more of a prestige, possibly, than Doctor Who was seen as for kids? Mm. Quatermass certainly wasn't. Quatermass was a serious mm. drama. Also, it's at the forefront of BBC drama making. It was always seen as hallowed, that transcended sci-fi. Well, yes, indeed. They weren't just the first sci-fi. They were the first sort of original productions, in a way, that embedded themselves. I think the timing of them, 53, 55, 58, each of them sees a sort of significant step forward in the way that things were done. So each of them, whilst vastly original and pioneering in their own way, also add to and develop from the one that went before. And as you say, I think because they gripped the nation, you know, the whole nation was new to this television thing, they do transcend the genre, in a way. And even people that would say, oh, I think sci-fi is rubbish, would sort of go, oh, yeah, but Quatermass, that was good, because that was the original, you know. But I suppose it's, it's obviously incredibly hard now to judge within context of 1953 and 
not even just production values, but just the role of TV in life. Because TV up to that point, we'd only been broadcasting against the fifties, mm. before obviously the same year as the Queen's coronation. So this is where a lot of people got tennis just for that. So TV productions before the Quatermass Mass Experiment are pretty much filmed plays. Yeah. Yeah, well, indeed, but sadly we don't have, I think we've got It's Midnight Dr. Schweitzer, haven't mm. we? But that's Cartier, again, who seems to have sort of created a new grammar for television and broke the mould of how these things were done. How did the BBC get Cartier? And what made him stand out as, a, as an innovative director? Well, it's sort of quite mysterious. It sort of says, as a result of a conversation with Michael Barry, he was invited to join the BBC. And he came from a film background. He'd worked at the UFA studio, suddenly, and people said, oh, he was a film director. I'd, he wasn't really. And then, in fact, he then subsequently tried to do films and didn't have particular success but I think his background in the film industry meant that he felt that things like pace and scale which I think were not things you associate with three cameras on the front of a flat wall set of something theatrical. No but do you think the skills needed to direct that he needed to direct debates just produced just produced by it wasn't almost seen as almost there's no artistic content you just point the cameras that's almost how they seem to reference but is there anything particular that he had in terms of understanding both the limitations of the genre and how to get the most out of well, I don't know if he gave a monkeys about the limitations of the genre, and it was just the fact that he sort of steamrolled people, because they're always saying, oh, you can't do this, and he goes, well, I must have this, and so then gets it. I mean, if you look at simply the number of people, actors are expensive, the number of people in Quasimus who are there just to add a little bit of colour to a scene, you know, a funny cameo here, the casts are massive, and if you look at a lot of other stuff at that time, the casts are much smaller because the scale of the drama is smaller, it's a few people in a room or whatever. So I think, I mean, they had a success with the Quatermass experiment and I think they were allowed a little bit of license but I think it was actually a lot of Cartier's skill was his sort of arrogance and bloody mindedness in that he just decided this is what I want to do. Those that worked with him do say you know I wouldn't have been surprised if he turned up in jobbers with a riding crop he cut that sort of figure he would refer to the actors as Mr Morell and Miss Finn and a lot of people were quite scared of him in a way that I'm not sure you could be particularly with a director now I don't think probably have some sort of industrial incident if a director frightened people so much but um, I remember Murray Watson saying that Cartier strode through the BBC you know banging doors open one nearly knocked Isabel Dean over as it sort of smashed back you know he was this sort of giant figure charging about but he does things like the title cards have to have smoke and be cut out and be a bit more interesting. I mean, the title card for Quater Mass in the Pit with the mud coming off and all that sort of thing. It's more than just graphics caption and things like that. He's pushing the one. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, the Quater Mass experiment, it's, although it's only a cardboard cutout, the, the way he gets the, the smoke, smoke, smoke up yeah. from the substance they sprinkle on it and yeah. then reverses the film. Was uh, Cartier the instigator of the Quater Mass experiment or did Neil come with the script? Now, this is what I've been sifting through, because interestingly, Cartier always maintained that Neil had the three ideas. From the get-go. From the get-go, and they went with the first one because it was the simplest. Cartier is wrong about that. Cartier also... It does seem quite tidy. Yeah, yeah. No, it was one science fiction adventure, and the lead was the astronaut coming back from space. That's Neil's initial pitch and, and breakdown. So it came from him. I mean, Cartier also maintained that the reason John Robinson isn't in Quatermass in the pit is because, like Reginald Tate, he died in between production, which isn't true. So no, it was it was Neil's idea, and the professor figure he comes into it because the when the astronaut comes back and starts mutating into the monster, 
the monster requires an Einstein brain. Is that, to, is that a quote? To, yes. Right. <laughs> to suck for information. Then this older scientist character. This is only in note form at the moment. So, you know, it's the, the scientist who's gone into space with two other astronauts. That's all part of it there. I think the amalgam thing is part of it quite early on. And his wife, who I think gets promoted from being his wife to being an assistant to being an important part of the rocket group staff. But she's certainly not originally part of the staff. But then in comes, as the sort of plotting goes on, I think it's overcome originally by the monster which can talk. Goes on telly, I think, to go. I think it's always in Westminster Abbey, or I think he goes it's somewhere important that's been in the news. And they, they, I don't think they hit upon Westminster Abbey straight away, but they're sort of in that ballpark. And, and the live TV thing is there. And he goes on telly and goes, oh, the monster says, I need an Einstein brain, because then he can understand. Is the monster is saying that to the camera? Yeah, yeah. so he makes this demand picture. on live television. Okay, yeah. For an Einstein brain. And uh, there were first drafts and they were well, well indeed. So then this character, we need an older scientist. And I think the twist is the older scientist sacrifices himself to be absorbed, but he has advanced cancer. So the monster absorbs the knowledge but also absorbs the disease and that's how the monster dies. Wow. So then he works back when he's rewriting and seeds this scientist character in earlier he gradually becomes the lead because he realises that the young astronaut can't really be the lead because at the start of the drama he's overtaken. And even though Duncan Lamont gets third billing and is a very important character, he's not actually in the Quatermass experiment all that much. Um, He's not in the last episode at all, is he? He's not, but he was there. He comes to Alexandra Palace because as well as the monster being Nigel Neal's hands in the famous thing, Nigel Neal hands through the blow-up of Westminster Abbey, they also had bigger monster effects in episode six, which was sort of sprouts of vegetation stuff emerging from the Westminster Abbey set. And they were and behind the tarpaulin manipulating those were Nigel Neal, Judith Kerr and Duncan Lamont, who decided to come along anyway. It wasn't just for the rap part. It, well, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. So as far as the casting goes, it's... What was it to say that by the time they got around to deciding the scripts were in place where Cartier and Neil wanted them, that as far as casting Quatermass goes, Morel was the first choice? Now, this is interesting. I mean, we know that Morel had been used by Cartier before in Dr. Schweitzer, which also features Reginald Tate in a smaller role. Now, what appears to happen is that Reginald Tate is cast first as Professor Quatermass in terms of the paperwork trail that we have. And then at some point during pre-production, Tate is crossed out and Morel goes in. And then not long after, Morel is out and Tate is back in. Now, the only logical conclusion I can draw from what I've poured through is that they wanted Morel. He wasn't available. He then did become available or there was a potential he was available. He was cast and he's typed onto paperwork. So it's not just a scribble. And then for whatever reason, he's unavailable again. So maybe they said to Tate, look, Reggie, old boy, Andre Morel can do it. He's a bigger name. Do you mind? And Tate went, no, no, fine. Morel comes in and then he can't do it. And they go, um, Reggie, by the way, which suggests that Reginald Tate was an extremely nice and understanding and affable fellow. And how soon was the, the switch back to Tate before? Morel is only for a matter of days, is Downers. But as I say, that is after Tate appears on earlier. So Morel in 53 was known as a bigger name than Tate. Yeah, because he did more film work and also he did a lot of stage work with Olivier and things like that. Reginald Tate was also sort of largely moving towards directing television as well. He directed and I think did the BBC director's course 
not long after completing the Greater Mass Experiment. Most of the actors involved at this stage of TV be theatre actors as opposed to film or Well, Isabel Dean was a huge TV star time. So we look at the Crazy Mass Experiment and in fact some of the pre-production uh, one pre-publicity article doesn't even mention Reginald Tate. So it's very much a triumvirate of Reginald Tate, Isabel Dean and Duncan Lamont. And Lamont just come back from America. Uh, he'd done The Virginian or something like that. But his wife Patricia Driscoll was quite a big name as well. So he'd done quite a lot of screen work but Isabel Dean had done particularly well on television. Her theatre career had slightly stumbled because she'd annoyed Binky Beaumont, but she was one of the first people to make a good living and be a very prominent actress on television. As opposed to... As opposed to the others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, in the way that sort of Patrick Trang, yeah. although he did film in a bit of theatre, was, you know, really carved a niche in television. Isabel Dean, if you look at Radio Times in the 50s, Isabel Dean was there all the time at that point and was very popular with the public, which is a shame that Judith Carew is such a naff part, really, because she was a very good actress, but I don't think, yeah, Judith is a particularly good part, really. It's considerably better than the film, though, isn't it? That's true, yes, in every, in every <laughs> measure. But, I mean, all the actors were getting used to television. It's 1953. I mean, you've got brilliant Katie Johnson, um, who is a couple of years off her big success in The Lady Killers. I mean, I remember seeing an interview with Richard Todd, where he was saying, you know, it was a struggle to get actors for television, because actors like him did theatre or film, and only the bad actors went to do television. So that's why I think they were very keen to get actors like Morell onto television, because it was still a bit of a dirty word for some in the profession, although it was well paid. But because it's live, like, I'm interested in the, the way that the, the hours that they were working, they would rehearse during the week, yeah. and then they would rehearse all week and then they would record yeah. here and they would rehearse all week and then perform Yeah. so although Patrick Troughton famously refers to theatre as like shouting in the evening there's quite a lot of shouting in the evening at this stage of television isn't there? Yes, yes and, and the better actors were the ones that didn't quite shout, shout mm-hmm. quite so loudly uh, I actually think the quality of acting in Quatermass Experiment is very strong. I really like Hugh Kelly, who plays Patterson, who could have been a really embarrassing performer, you know, the histrionic scientist. And I think he has a sort of suppressed anxiety about him that I think is rather good. And I wish we had more of Ian Cullen as Chief Inspector Lomax. So I know Nigel Neal really enjoyed his performance because he found him rather elegant. And I mean, in typical Nigel Neal mode, I only know this because he was slagging off Jack Warner at the time. <laughs> it wasn't that he was going, I really like like Ian Collin, he was going, I thought Jack Warner was awful in the film. In the TV version, we had this really elegant guy who Ian Collin, really interestingly, was there at, his father was a famous hoaxer, and Ian Collin, I think, was there at the taking of the famous photograph of the Loch Ness Monster. That's actually a, is it Toy Submarine or a stick? Ian Collin was involved in that. That is a scoop for you. Ian Colin Weatherill, he was called, and his father was Marmaduke Weatherill, who was a famous hoaxer. I think the, the Patterson character is a huge loss from the film, but we'll talk about that as, as we go on. The, the first episode opens, uh, as we've said, with a very innovative title sequence. I suppose the, the problem with live TV also as well is the music has to be played in live yeah. as, as well. Was it always a film that they would use stop and cool? Holtz, Miles, Stock, music kind of sounds a little reductive. What was it when they wouldn't especially record? Yeah, I don't think, I think it was, I mean, simply to a matter of economics, I think it's a great piece of music. I don't think there's anything where they try something else. The, the closing music for episode six is different from the inhumanity of the Trevor Duncan that is used as the closing music. They use something else, which is really weird and quite jaunty to close episode six. Was that a Cartier decision? Or did they say, you try and make it more upbeat? Each one always has a, a different closing music for the final episode. 
which I think, yes, is supposed to be a bit more upbeat. But uh, I've listened because I got hold of it recently. A lovely fellow sent me, he's managed to source all of the music from all of the episodes, or where he hasn't, he's got little chunks that he said, I think this is, and has sent me loads of stuff that I haven't gone through all of it yet. And I listened, and I thought, well, I'll listen to the, the closing music of Quaid's Mass Experiment just to see, you know, there was a transmission fault in, mm. in, in Quaid's Mass Experiment, Experiment, episode six. The whole episode was a bit of a disaster. So I thought, I wonder what it what it went out on, and it goes out on this quite sort of jolly music. But I read a newspaper review, which said Reginald Tate t- took a tired bow at the end of the episode. And I thought, is that metaphorical? You know, I is his valedictory speech. Does he look a bit drained, a tired? Bow that could could be that. And I asked a few people, a few production type people, and even I consulted people like Matthew Sweet. Said, do you, do you know if they, uh, if anybody, because I, I was sure I'd seen footage of people bowing at the end of sort of televised plays. I'm sure I'd seen something of somebody bowing on television and thinking, oh, is that something that they did? And everyone went, oh, they might have done it for plays, but they certainly won't have done it for Quasar. But I don't think so. Anyway, the conclusion was no. And then. I found something, and I'm not going to say what it was because I'll save that for the book, but I found something because I'd still got this little niggle going in my head that confirms that they actually all took a bow at the end of episode six of The Greatest Mass Experiment. The actors all came out and took a bow. All together. Uh, I, I don't know. I wonder if, because it's says original take, took a tired bow, whether they did it like you would in the theatre where the mass would bow and then perhaps the, the leads would come out and do a single or whether Tate stepped forward at the end did was but but certainly there was the actors took a bow at the end of episode six. You have been watching. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I wonder if there was the thing the yeah, thing did a wave. wave. Yes. <laughs> I'd like him to do an off character wave Jeffrey Holland at the end of at the end of IDI would be Patterson going, Oh sorry, yeah, yeah, still alive. Yes. <laughs> Including the dead people yes. breaks the fourth wall to, to an alarming extent. I look forward to hearing about that. So we open with stock footage of a, of a V2 rocket and a, yeah. voice, and a voiceover, don't we? Yeah. One morning, two hours after dawn, the first manned rocket in the history of the world takes off from the Taruma Range, Australia. The three observers see on their scanning screens a quickly receding Earth. The rocket is guided from the ground by remote control as they rise through the ozone layer, the stratosphere, the ionosphere, beyond the air. They are to reach a height of 1,500 miles above the Earth and there learn what is to be learned. For an experiment is an operation designed to discover some unknown truth. It is also a risk. That's a pretty impressive opening. Well, it is. It's a view from space. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Do you know where they got that? I do know, but it's the sort of thing I can remember arcane facts about actors in my head. Things like stock footage and disc library labels and that sort of thing. I look at on bits of paper and I type up, and that's the sort of thing that that will stick in the minds of other people. So we have the voiceover about, which establishes that the rocket is that it's remote controlled. Yeah. Which is very, which is vital to the plot of the last episode, but. we get, we're left in no doubt that the pushies are at the forefront of physics and science and that the UK is leading them. Yeah. And like a lot of early 70s sci-fi and Doom Watch and season 7 of Doctor Who, the UK far in advance of its real programme, the economic state is there. I mean, is that, I, mean, I suppose that that's as much just practical necessity they're filming in the UK as it is to a boom to post-war Britain or patriotic in the, in the wake of the Queen's uh, coronation. Yeah, I mean, I, he wanted to tell this science fiction story, and, and, and because he was so clever, 
I think, well, one, you know, so you need to set it in the UK, but then all that patriotic fervor was there. So he uses that to tell the story. And, well, two things to tell the story. One, the memories of bombs dropping. So, oh, crikey, is this a bomb dropping? And then two, when it's not, and we're being pathfinders, there's the patriotic fervor, there's the fact we've just, I mean, Everest is mentioned in episode two when Fuller Love, when they said it's murder, and Fuller Love goes, well, that'd be like pushing somebody off Mount Everest. So all of that stuff, I mean, Neil is very, it's great that if you wanted to write something about, you know, what was going on at the time and the historical context of it, well, Neil sort of puts it all in there very handily in a way that wouldn't necessarily need to be the case, but it shows that it's it's very much of its time. That He's using the topical news of the day and everything that's going on to sort of inform his storytelling. I think in, this, in the fifth episode, you've got, when the police are describing the perfect storm, that they've got resources, there's like two embassies of Commonwealth countries that, that have their, their dues, don't they? I thought it had not ended up in the show, and it actually does. And quite early on, the fact that there's a visiting African chief is quite a big way of distracting the public or the police resources yes. from what's going on at Westminster Abbey. And it is actually in that it's not quite as prominent in the episode, because I'd forgotten about it until I went back to the script. But it's a big thing in the sort of breakdown is there's this big African chief. And I think there's a question as to whether they can get footage of an African chief arriving that they can use filmed footage right. of that they don't bother with in the end. So we open to the British Experimental Rocket Group. And it is the British Experimental Rocket Group. Yeah. In this one, isn't it? The experimental gets dropped later on. Yes, yes, yes. We're now more confident. Rick, yeah, yeah. yeah. We're now Experiments are over. We're just doing it now. It's, now it's standard. And you have that sort of sweeping shot of our cast. And it isn't until I was, I was watching this back more recently, like this scene and various cuts within it goes on for like half the episode. Mm. We're just in the control. We go into the absolute minutiae, even if it's how real it is, but the detail of rocket science. Yeah, if you did it now, you'd start with the rocket landing, yeah. I think, crash landing. You know, all of that stuff, that anticipation, you just wouldn't get there. I remember thinking like how well it was done, particularly when later in the episode, where he's remote control landing. Obviously, all of this is done just verbally, like the radio, and it's what you don't see, and because of the context of you're watching, something from 1953, that's fine. But it made me think that even what, Resurrection of the Daleks, the attack on the space station. You don't see it. No. You don't, it just, I've lost contact with the fighters. Oh, where are yeah. the fighters? Oh, the yeah. fighters are dead. And, and there, that feels like you could have shown that. Well, I've just watched uh, an episode of Game of Thrones where a big part of a battle is depicted by everyone conveniently gets burning swords and they go into the distance and you can tell all these people are being slaughtered because the lights on the swords go out. And that's... I mean, it's brilliant because it's shocking, it's horrible, but it's also brilliantly economic mm. because you go, well, instead of showing masses of extras, you know, getting killed by the living dead, also rendered by special effects, we've just got lights in the distance going out. Brilliant. It's, it's, so even today, it's about telling the story you can tell from the most economic perspective. And, you know, in, in those days that, you know, having good actors in a room being all tense and Judith worrying about, her, you know, set up early that her husband's in the ship and that. You know that Quatermass is bearing a burden of responsibility, and I mean it starts. We've we've not even heard from them, so we hear from them. So there's a chart. So it, it's building, it's building, but it's it's telling it through the individual stories of those well, two of the four people in that control, and then the politician comes who doesn't even make it to episode two. He goes to the landing and then vanishes. Blaker and Quatermass even gets a line where he goes. Oh, I wondered how much you lot had understood, and then goes on to explain yeah. the separation of the rocket. Well, go through it one it. more time. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes, the speech transmitter's been dead for a long time. Our only chance of saving is to attempt separation by remote control. And if we separation, I thought you hadn't understood. I, 
I'm not reading the, um, the, the script book and it's illuminating from what changes from the script book that was released in the 50s to the, to the transmitted episode because there's two bits of Blake to remember is that he phones Greater Mass yes. just like to basically say what's happening Yeah, and then I thought this was a good early example of how you, you draw an audience focus in the very early days of multi-camera he has that bit where he says to, basically to Greater Mass like are they dead yeah. and then the camera cuts to Judith Illustrating the fact her husband, Queen Bess, doesn't want to say just in case, like he's really protecting her feelings. It's like even it's even so early as the subject is edited. Yeah, yeah. Although, would she have actually been able to hear what was being said? Because you can hear it because the actors in the next in the studio about ten feet away. But Quatermass has got the phone to his. Anyway, it doesn't matter. And also, she's a senior scientist on the project. She might be dead. It's not going to be a shock. No, no. She's probably she's probably thought about this. Yes. And then we have the first blackout planned procedure. Yeah. But then we cut back to... The last forever. Yes. And the music comes up. But I was yeah. like, oh, we, 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 we never really understand how unusual that was. But then we come back to the same scene. We're still, we're still, we're still, we're still in the love tracking in the control room. Is that to just get actors into different positions? Or yeah. And, I th- and, yeah, yeah and, and to suggest the passage of time. Yeah. You know, yeah. We, we have, we're told that the... The rocket, which has gone far further than should have done, yeah. lost contact with it, and it's now coming back to Earth, and it's going to crash in England. With that, with that, yes. shore. With, with, with that shore, that's handy. Yeah, that's yeah. Um, and we have the nice bit, all done almost in, in dialogue, as quite as it's because we've already established the rocket is remote controlled. So Quatermass himself has to separate the, the three stages. Yeah, I like the idea also that they they, they say we have to leave the other bit up there. Maybe we can use it again, which sounds which sounds interesting. <laughs> <laughs> to wherever they have to go back and get go go back and get a, a nuclear engine. So Quatermass is able to separate them and it crash lands and they have this wonderful bit with is it Marsh or Patterson as the as the, it, as it, the Oh no, it's closer than that. It's Croydon, no, yeah, it's closer, closer than that. that. That's, yeah. that's a, he's worked that out. It's like south of London, Croydon, no clo- even closer than Croydon. Phew, that's a relief. Yeah. Do we actually establish where Berg is where the research station is. No, no, it doesn't have a geographical location, does it? I might be no. I'm pretty sure it doesn't. Because I'm, I'm guessing, and it's I probably don't add too much, too much reality into it. That something equivalent to Jodrell Bank or something they need as well wouldn't be in London because of the interference. No, well, indeed, you'd, you'd need somewhere a bit more, a, a bit more rural. But fortunately, it's closer than Croydon. It's, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and it was, it was originally, it was supposed to be. On the outskirts of London, and then they, then they, and the dialogue got changed quite late in the day to close it's Wimbledon. Was that to make later scenes? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. But certainly, a, a late change. There's a, there's a newsreader who crops up at one point, and his dialogue was originally it's fallen on the outskirts of London, and it's changed to in the area of Wimbledon Common, um, because um, and and isn't um, Neil Wilson credited as policeman Wimbledon? So they, they you know, they they go for Wimbledon for whatever reason. Wimbledon Common as yeah. well. Um, we have our first big scene change. Then we've had the site of the of the, uh, of the crash, yeah. um, where we open, and it's it's that wonderful bit where the camera the, it's before the actors are cued, before before their sound effects, and it's it's almost lovely that you've got you know that there was waiting. They're cued up. That's the latest cue of, of of live TV. We've sort of established very quickly that they. The rocket has crashed through someone's house. Yes, who's waiting her by seat by just taking her seat. That's um, is that Katie Johnson. Katie Johnson, Johnson yes, the Mrs. Wilberforce from yeah. from the Lady Killers, um, and everything's rather quiet. And it's 
before the man and their wife who come yeah, out. Yes, and, Mr. Yeah, and Mrs. Yeah, Matthews. And, yeah. they, and then suddenly the sound kicks in of flames and so I was like, ah, okay, now I get it. We just we were just a bit before Hugo's <laughs> cues. It's like this would be like the trim on, a, on an edit. Most of the work's done on reaction, but I believe on the heat of it, it's, it's really good because they, you know, they've not got that much to work with, haven't they? No, no, it's a very small bit of set. Although, again, that amazing thing that you've got, you've got both yeah, levels, levels of a house there. that's been smashed yeah, in half. Yeah. Uh, with a bit of a rocket poking out. I mean, this is none, none of this and is that's all set, isn't yeah. it? She's she's on like a two. There's a two level set. Yes. Yeah. Plus a working door of the rocket. Yeah. Because that that's part of the same set. Isn't yeah. It? It comes through. It's, it's it's not cheap. Do you know who's who the set designer? Uh, well, Richard are uh, Richard Greeno uh, and Stuart Marshall are the designers. Although it seems to be that Stuart Marshall, who might actually still be alive, he never wrote back to me. Um, Richard Greeno did that. Stuart Marshall was a sort of assistant who then got promoted to be full designer. I think two episodes that Richard Greeno didn't do, but Marshall was definitely there, I think, for, for all the episodes, even though he's not credited on. And Greeno was the senior designer. He didn't remember much either, which is shame because Clifford Hatsu decided to Master the Pit remembered loads and, and gave me loads of stuff. But um, I did actually you know, make contact with both of the designers of Experiment, but, but didn't get all that much out of them. And Greeno wrote some memoirs and, and doesn't really mention Quatermass in them either. He did take a few photos, typically of the sets for the first two episodes, which are the ones we've got. <laughs> they won't be standing sets either, will they? They will be taken down on yeah. the, and then put, put back up. Because the, the studio will be used because yeah. it's live. It's live will be used for other things during the week. So a policeman arrives, finally, yes. and they have, some, they have some good fun with that as well. And they rescue the lady from her house, who's very stoic about her house she, being she's com- she's com- <laughs> completely, completely destroyed. They rescue her cat, and then there's, there's a lovely bit of early sort of meal character building. Absolutely, and a bit of scandal in that the cat is fired between episodes one and four when Mrs. Uh, she's not Mrs. Wilberforce, Miss Wilde, Ms. Wilde yes. returns Ms. Wilde. with her cat in episode four. A different actor is playing a cat because the first cat was too savage. Who says the first cat? Uh, it's, 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 yeah, I think it's Paddy, Paddy Russell when requesting the cat or requesting who I think is requested from props which I mean, there's some sort of apartheid system going on. <laughs> So can we not have the cat we had in the first episode? And was considered, were considered props. Yeah, well, and, and actually, Judith Kerr told me that the cat, but we don't know if it was the one from episode one or the one from episode four, was actually Katie Johnson's cat. So I don't know if Katie... So I'm, I'm guessing maybe that the first cat was a bit of a handful and Katie Johnson said, well, I've got a cat. Well, it may have been that she... You know, maybe she just wanted to give her cat work, so it was sticking pins into the first cat. The first cat was perfectly benign, but she was making it misbehave in order to get her cat a job. Would Katie Johnson get any your payment? Oh, well, quite possibly, cat? you know. Possibly. But surely, you know, it was established in films that there were suppliers of yes. animals. So yes. Why not on television? Well, I, th- well, I, th- I mean, it's 1953. There's certainly there are... Couldn't use the same the same suppliers. There are occasions. Well, I don't know. Oh, that's true. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know where they got anyway. I don't know where they got the first cat from. But what I know is that it's not the same cat in episode four. So there would have been somebody there watching episode. Going, oh, I think we'll find that's a different cat. I wonder if there was a noticeable difference between between the cats. The news of the crash is relayed to the research station, and then um, as Equatormass says to them, the fire brigade not to yeah not not to hose it. Because it's too hot, and it'll blow the rocket up. Yeah, and a lot of that sort of stuff's in the early notes, where, where the plot isn't actually necessarily formulated. He's obviously got 
the scientific plausibility stuff. He, he makes a note of that just in very basic synopses, as if to sort of remind himself almost when we're doing this, make sure these sciencey bits go in. So the plausibility of the science is quite key to his planning of the story. But then they do that bit in the following scene where the has it cooled down a bit now? And he goes and touches the rocket. Yes, it's about 100 degrees now. It's and yeah. it, but it hasn't incinerated my hands. That's, that's, that's handy. But that, that, isn't, that isn't as funny as the, the, not, not, the episode is in the film, where Quatermass goes from nobody touched the rocket to get them out in literally 30 seconds. Yes. And yes. then like, but you just said, never mind what I just said. And then they all hose the rocket as the rocket opens and then shower. <laughs> yeah, because it's a brilliant, because it's a brilliant visual. Now. It is, yeah. And then they as well. So, but before we get to that, we have, we cut to the Daily Gazette and the character of James Fulonov. Yeah. Who is one of my, yeah, I think he's a great character. Um, he is, yeah. And he has, there is that, again, where the difference between, you know, Decent world building and necessary padding comes in, but there's there's lovely detail there about the rivalries between journalists and like yes. what um, and what full of doing. Paulson Jones has you know has such fun with that. He's great, real, yeah. That, filling that part out. Yes, he's also twenty nine, I think, which is extraordinary. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Wow, Jimmy, this is just a straight right out job, not. Full of love stuff at all. I need something to denounce, Jacko. After dietitians and graphologists and the English flower show, something that's somebody's fault. Full of love is a very late addition oh, to, okay. the, to the story. Just to give it a new, a, a new uh, thread. I, I think that, well, it's, it's a thread of, of a lot of Neil's stuff. And, you know, I wonder if it owes anything to Orson Welles and The War of the Worlds is that to tell the story through the eyes of the media is a very good way of suggesting scale. But also, Neil was from a journalistic background. His father ran the newspaper in the Isle of Man. And he's also a good foil for Quatermass to talk at and uh, for, for Love to provide a, a conscience. Yes, rather disappointingly, a lot of Fuller Love's best lines in the script book aren't in the TV script or get cut out of the TV script. He's got, oh, a, he's got a speech in episode six about how poor Fifi would have enjoyed these bones and all that, that, that is in the camera script and then crossed out. Uh, and a lot of the quite good stuff that he gets when he joins in in episode four, when they go to the chemist and, and things like that in, in episode five, isn't actually quite as strong. And it's obvious that Neil sort of went back when he was doing the script book and, and obviously liked Fuller Love and, and made him a slightly better character than he is on paper in the, in the script, uh, which is a bit of a shame that, that that stuff wasn't, a lot of that stuff wasn't in the... Uh, TV, but he still gets nice. He still gets nice bits, and, and he gets those wonderful lines in episode one about you know that technical stuff is mankind trying to sound sure of himself because he knows just beyond the air there's a new wilderness, pitch dark both day and night, empty and cold. Uh, and uh, 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 and I also like the line. Uh, what well, granted, even through days of frightful strain, finds he's made history and lost two valued friends in the process. Mm. But that doesn't make him tell fibs. <laughs> <laughs> and I like that doesn't make him tell fibs. I think that's great. But there's but the morality of him as well, because he has a line to Blacker, I think, when he when he turns up and just says, "If it's a secret weapon, tell us. We can use discretion." Yes, <laughs> <laughs> that's not how it works. <laughs> Which but he proves that he does because he's got the lovely scene in episode two where he says to when when he, he witnesses. The fact that the guys were still on the rocket, and he says to Quatermass, "I'm just here to watch the aeroplane." Yeah, which is a lovely moment. moment because he's not, and you know, yeah. he's not. Quatermass yeah. knows he's not, but it's, yeah, it says it's a sort of tacit acknowledgement between the two of them, which is why Quatermass trusts him later on. Indeed, but you wonder now how because there's a BBC report, and we 
have the, the time-honoured now uh, method of disseminating information by using a newsreader, which yeah. is still as relevant today. Yeah. Um, although I suppose now you might Twitter or Instagram would be a, a way of disseminating information. Mm-hmm. Even when you watch sort of like you know early new Doctor Who, because of five two thousand six, the use of uh, Russell T Davis tells. I mean, Aliens of London was the first one to be filmed, yeah. and that is all done. Well, a lot, a lot of that story is done through you know BBC News twenty four reporter yeah. going. They're calling this the end of the world and, and all of that. And uh, and those you know cut to how do you suggest it's going all over the world? Well, we'll have what she called Cassidy Wells. Is it? The, oh yeah, the, uh, the international, the news international news Trinity news. Wells. Trinity, Trinity Wells. Wells yes. That's right. But the, uh, the, there is a, a nice touch in the, the the news report that we have because it refers to a safe crash landing. It doesn't look a very safe crash landing. <laughs> nice comment on the BBC managing the situation there. <laughs> but that then leads Fake news. <laughs> yes. It then leads to having a reporter on the ground, which again is great shorthand for being able to describe what you can't see. And they have that charming, that sounds patronising, but it, it is it's meant it. It's like, I can hear like the roar of the crowd, and, like, yes. and then the roar of the crowd kicks in after the man is after the man is reporting it. And he's very jolly. I like he is, yes. Yeah. Pat McGrath, he's called, yes. Um, Who's the actor? Pat McGrath, oh, yeah, Pat, Pat McGrath, yeah. A, a lot of good characters have Neil don't actually get given names, yeah. So he's just he's just BBC reporter, I think, is he? Uh, yeah, BBC interviewer, BBC interviewer. But the actress Pat McGrath, yes. But he has he clearly has the the common touch because when he interviews Quatermass about like what's going on and like ignore the fact that just like how close the journos are to the to the rocket. Scene here now is one of complete jubilation. There's a tremendous crowd coming in by car on foot from every direction. People are singing and cheering. I can even see some Barrow boys over there cashing in. Is it Marsh who's like trying to contact them? Yes. He's been hassled yeah. by, by yeah. journalists yeah. while he's trying to contact them. But then you have the, the BBC reporter asking Quatermass about the uh, about the astronauts. And the first question he asks is like, do they have wine? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. As well. But the great bit when, um, I forget the line, and no doubt you, you know it, when he's asking who the, the astronauts are and, and Quatermass talks about is it Dr. Ragnar? Yeah. And he, like, he did a paper on that, you, you probably know him. It's like, yeah? <laughs> and I think it actually says in the, if it doesn't say it in the script, it says it in the script, where he says to something like, you probably remember his work on so-and-so, so-and-so, and then it says, BBC interviewer, who doesn't? Oh, yes, I do. <laughs> Then there's Dr. Ludwig Wuckenheim. You may remember his rocket experiments in Germany before the war. Interviewer. Who doesn't? Yeah. Of course. Which <laughs> <laughs> is great. There's quite a lovely touches like that. And, and actually, when you've... I read the script of the Quasi Mass Experiment before I saw the episodes. And actually, there's lots of lovely little touches in there that are, are sort of beyond the actors sometimes. He'll give a, a, a character a bit of depth. And then you sort of see it on screen and you go, the actor hasn't quite pulled that off in the way that the script intended or does it communicate to us now because of the sort of change in acting styles betwixt then and there. Those script books which came out after Pitt, didn't they? Also? Yeah. So they weren't based on... Did Neil go back and rewrite, basically, as he wanted? Or they... he'd, got, he'd got the scripts and he just changed a few bits of them. Not not non massive, although well the Quasimass experiment changes because the ending to episode three is totally different to the ending of episode three as it of the of the episode. Right. So is it episode three where where, where he's kidnapped? Um, uh, yeah, he's taking his, they, they shoot their way into the house and then off was always off camera in, in Mrs. Wilde's kitchen. Yeah, so that that's quite an actiony sort of scene yeah. which you suspect would have looked a bit of a mess. I mean, you you know, they sometimes can't keep up with the character crossing. Yeah. Um, so an episode ending where somebody smashes through a door and a car drives off, I think would have been probably too... Because they did have sometimes just have a scene that was a bit too muddled to be understandable. And actually the episode ends on Quatermass and Briscoe looking at the mutating 
you know, they've got some samples, haven't they? They're yeah, rotating. Yeah. It says, "Oh, this this could be the end of the world." That's the the, oh, end, okay. the, the episode ending is totally, totally different. different right. It's yes. it's on a portentous piece of dialogue rather right. than an action scene. Because in episode six, there, there's a, a sequence where a helicopter arrives. I'm guessing that would be quite a challenge. That's, I think the stock footage of a helicopter, oh, is there a, or there's certainly the noise of a helicopter. I was just, I'm just trying to think. That, yeah, the, 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 a helicopter is suggested. I think there might be stock footage. Leave that with me. I will. We'll come on to that as we get to the end. So um, we get a, um, a snapshot of the people that have turned up to witness this rocket. And as, as I've said, the uh, the cordon around the rocket is is quite generous. But you have the piss bloke. Yeah, the reveller. The rev- yes. Is that, is that yes. how he's, he's, he's tipsy man in the book, but right. he's reveller in. Uh, yeah, yeah, Dennis because, Dennis Wyndham, who had a very interesting life, actually. Who tells everyone they're too modest. Yes. Um, but he's got a football rattle and a, a rosette. Yeah. Um, so clearly a shorthand for working class person, because he likes, he likes football. Yes. Well. <laughs> but his, and because he you know, plays no real part and everyone seems annoyed by him, I, I always like to imagine he was just a pissed Spurs fan and wandered up Muswell Hill into Ali Pali and onto a set and they just still... They just well, uh, funny enough, a lot of his dialogue isn't in the script. Oh, and it's just... Uh, do and, what you want. and yeah, and and the bit where the policeman grabs him and he goes, "How dare you!" Yeah. That's that's not in the script. So that's the actor oh, giving it a bit oh, of sort of affronted. Yeah. I'm not drunk at all, okay. which is how which I think is a lovely uh, bit. But that was yeah, that came from the actor. Ah, that's good as well. Fuller Love has a has more with um, with Quatermass at this point, and I wondered is the characterization of Fuller Love, which clearly, as you said, uh, Neil has a. A journalistic background and grew up in a journalistic house that clearly has a, a good eye and an affection for that sort of person. Is that meant to be indicative of sort of the, the, a decent journalist of the day? Yes, yeah, it's the journalistic equivalent of the tart with the heart, isn't yeah. it? You know, that. But although, interestingly, a lot of the contemporary feedback, and one wonders therefore how subjective or not the people doing the write-ups are being, is a repeated criticism is in the depiction of the journalists. By journalists? By journalists. journalists. Now, they don't specify enough whether the target of their ire is Paul Wilson Jones as full love or whether it's that there's an American journalist played by Phil Philip Vickers and and an Indian journalist, uh, various others in... in, um, The Indian... In, in, in episodes three or four, when they go back to Miss Wilde's house in episode yeah, four, uh, there's a, there's a gag with journalists and, and, and some of the writing about episode four, they sort of criticise the journalists. So whether they're talking about Fuller Love and Jacko or whether they're talking about those journalists, we don't know. But it's interesting that you sort of want to go, but he, he did know journalists, you know, and whether he's being a bit too close to home and they're being a bit defensive or whether he's gone too far and, and taken a couple of kernels of truth, or whether just they weren't portrayed very well, we don't know. Who do you think would be an equivalent to Fuller Love now? What a journalist we've got now that would be like the sort of person that portrayed as Fuller Love? Because he's there's an element that he feels he's wasted in doing in doing what he's doing, and this is this is this is a chance that he's almost like he's a you know he's a he's a reviewer or a critic. Yeah, because don't they even doesn't Jacko even say at the beginning? You know, this is not Fuller Love yeah. stuff. He's a bit of a social commentator, isn't he? He's a bit of a... And I think he's got his own he's column, column byline, hasn't he? Is this Quentin Letts? <laughs> oh, God, like I don't know. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, yeah, J.S. Burlough is completely uh, incapable and unqualified to review theatre. He doesn't do it anyway. But uh, in Quatermass in the Pit, you know, he says... They talk about sex in the coffee bars is the sort of thing that Burlough has been doing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, he's a bit like... He's a bit like the actor that's been doing a soap opera all the time that wants to do a bit of Ibsen or something, going, come on, this is not what I do. But it's what he's become famous for. Sure. 
Uh, is the um, the return of Fuller Love in the pit, and therefore his absence in in, in Quatermass too, a reaction that he didn't want to kill off Fuller Love because the journalist character dies in Quatermass too. Well, he doesn't though; he gets taken over. So, so oh, the influence. My my feeling because Neil wrote at the time that he'd not repeated any characters from Experiment in Quatermass two because of the movie, and he didn't want there to be confusion. You know, you'd be watching a Briscoe in the movie, and then Briscoe in Quatermass 2 or whatever. So he decided pretty early on not to repeat any of the characters, which is why I guess Lomax appears in the film of Quatermass 2, but doesn't appear in the series of Quatermass 2. And Lomax is mentioned in Quatermass 2. So Full of Love could have been Conrad. And it seems a bit okay, odd yeah. that Conrad goes, and you wanted to speak to me of all journalists. Mm. And going, he probably wanted to speak, speak to, to Full of Love. Yeah. So although it's difficult to see Fuller Love the Dandy being quite as convincing a, a vessel for that brilliant telephone scene, which is, I think, one of the highlights of Quatermass 2, where Roger Dog guy calls through and goes, you know, 10 minutes ago, I became the biggest yeah, one. Yeah. Fuller Love is also slightly different in Quatermass and the Pit, not just the fact that he's played by a different actor. He's not quite such a sort of philosophising dandy as he is in the, in the first one. And it seems a bit odd that they bring him back and then kill him when he's been such a, a highlight of a character. So I don't know, I don't know. Whitson Jones was originally, going to be in was originally down to do it. I spoke to his widow, well, they divorced by the but I spoke to the woman he was married to at the time, who says that she thought he was probably busy in musicals and would, would be doing a West End musical, would be preferable to doing telly. And in fact, a production company, he'd not done much telly, Whitson Jones, when Crazy Mass Experiment was on, he had just played a journalist in something else. And a theatrical company approached the BBC asking if they could have him for a play with Trevor Howard. I think they're rehearsing episode one, and the BBC had to say, no, he's a really important character and we're going to need him for the whole of the next six weeks. So he was starting to be in demand even then. So eventually we hear tapping, don't we? And we yes. Have, and we have um, confirmation that they're alive. That's that to be in there. So... They get the door open. There's a curiosity where they're like, is it they're trying to open the door with a sound? Is that the idea? I'm not, I don't quite know what now, now I've got it, and the sound there's like a pitching up. Oh, now, now we can open it. Yeah. Is this some sort of like higher science? I think that's some kind of cutting yeah. edge. This is how this is how we open the door once we get the signal. Yeah. But we get it's quite tense because what could be seen as a lengthy scene while we try and work the prop out with that sound effect ratches the tension up almost before as as Karun comes out. Yeah. So Karun comes out. Uh, well, a man comes out. His Judith identifies that it's that it's Victor Caroon, her husband. Is it uh, Quatermass and Patterson rush? Quatermass and Marsh rush in. Yeah, rush yeah. And when they go in, that's a pre-filmed sequence, yes. isn't it? Is yeah. that because there just wasn't time to cut to? Because they would need to do yeah, it because, to because they, yeah, they're basically going into a cupboard. Yeah, and uh, and then there they are in a in a big uh, spaceship set that again to erect the whole set for. That. And, and they and they filmed the stuff in space with um, the three astronauts getting attacked. That was all that's pre-filmed, pre-filmed as right. well. So you've got the set standing yeah. in the film studios. So um, that's what all the rocket scene. The yeah. they're all they're all shot on film. Yeah. Uh, so Peter Bathurst and um, Christopher Rhodes as Green and Reichenheim were, were probably the only people in it who could watch the whole series they because their work was completed right. uh, before it was aired. Didn't oh, and the two people playing Space Girl and Space Lieutenant in the fake film. Yeah. When they go in there, it's also then we get we get incidental music. Yes. Um, is that is that I mean that that's played in live in the in the studio, or is that pre-recorded and then played as Tilly scene? Uh, 
I will have to check this. This is the sort of thing I, I draw a blank on. I think it's played in from grounds. It's keyed in from okay, grounds. Good. Because I'm right in thinking that as this is live, the only way of inserting film is to film a film cap, the, the studio camera, to record oh. a TV playing playing the film. And you do, have a, to do, film. do, do a camera and do, yeah, do, yeah, and have to. One of the skills is to have to match it up. I remember Derek Aylward, who plays Ward in Quatermass Two, said the biggest trick tricky thing with his bit was that he starts you know he's covered in the black stuff he's going down the steps but then he has to sort of fall into frame in the live studio and he said they had real headaches how would they marry up you know the the film to him sort of falling into the live studio and carrying on the scene as it were it's a real skill this sequence of of, of, of recording lines so we've established the other two astronauts are missing yeah something the Doctor Who story Ambassadors of Death will do very well. Yes. Also, also yeah. as an episode ending, and that isn't the last time we'll see. I think it was uh, sometime later I was, when I was watching Quatermass properly for, for the first time. I was like, I can't watch 70s Doctor Who again. Well, the and whole of season seven, seven actually, because yes. um, Spearhead from Space, I mean, the, the only is the only Quatermass 2. Yeah. And in fact, the farmer, who looks not unlike mm. the farmer of Quatermass 2, is Neil Wilson, who's, who plays the policeman in Quatermass Experiment. Amazing. Um, and then Doctor of the Silurians has all the race memory stuff. Yeah, of course, yes. And then Ambassadors of Death has all this missing astronaut. And in, yeah. and in Inferno, we're, we're going around lots of industrial, um, and what looks like a refinery and big machinery, from very similar to Quatermass 2 in the, 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 the setting. Yeah. I also, in the in the rocket scenes, you also get I think, the first, the, well, actually, the scene as he comes out, you get the first um, indication that Patterson is uh, coming apart a bit. As he reacts with absolute panic to there's no one in there. Everyone's like in, in shock. The Quatermass seems almost like, well, what's happened? But Patterson's like, it's almost like, is is freaking and seeding a, a character thing that will, that will come later. Yes, and, but unfortunately, the, the, the microphone is obviously not quite in the right position yeah. because... Quatermass sort of goes out and says, there's nobody in there. And then Patterson says something really dramatic that you can't hear. <laughs> I feel bad pointing out everything, like every, every focus pull that doesn't, that doesn't quite work because it feels like <laughs> But yes, yes, you're right. And that's, and that's the end of episode one. Yeah. And Inhumanity by Trevor Duncan. By Trevor Duncan. Uh, or Leonard Charles Trebilcock, to give him his real name, whose music is, features all the way through uh, the whole of the Quatermass series. When was that recorded? Do you know? Was that was that fairly modern at the time, or was that just stock? Kind of yeah, it was. Well, he was because what he done, he he'd been a BBC. He played music and he joined the Royal Air Force, but he rejoined the BBC in 1947 and started composing his own work. But um, because he was a BBC employee, he couldn't um, record stuff for the BBC. So that's why he became Trevor Duncan, and he sold his work under a pseudonym of Trevor Duncan which then became stock footage. Nigel Neal should have tried that. He, well, yes, indeed. And he'd left, he left the BBC in 54. So I don't know exactly when that music was written, but no, it would, it would have been relatively recent oh, stuff. Okay. And that's the end of episode one. And the rest of my chat with Toby about the Quatermass experiment will be in the next episode of Birdcast. My thanks to Toby for his time and generosity, and also to Sarah Rubin at the BFI, Steve Horry, and Andrea Kinnear. Birdcast is presented by Howard Ingham of room207press.com and John Deere of viewsfromahill.com and is edited by Emma Cooper. You can visit our website, birdcast.room207press.com or find Birdcast on Facebook. On Twitter, it's at Birdcast Calling or you can email us 
at birdcastcalling at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.